Thanks for listening to our messages from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources and information on connecting people to Jesus for life change, visit us online at southbridgefellowship.com. Today is also an exciting day because of the passage of scripture that we're going to look at. And I'm just saying that because I'm a preacher, okay? Because it should be excited like every week, right? Go lamentations, it's weeping, but we're, we're pumped. No. Here's the deal. Today we're looking at the resurrection of Christ. That's where we've gotten to in the Gospel of John. So we're going to be in John chapter 20 if you have your Bible. You can go and turn there in John chapter 20. And if you've never been to church before on an Easter Sunday, I'm going to give you a little training of what happens on Easter Sunday. Anytime I say that Jesus Christ is risen, you say back. All right, we got it. And here, let me just give a little, I laid a little ground rules for the first service, so I don't want you to be out of it too. Uh, just for the life of our church, even if it's not Easter Sunday, you can always talk back to me, okay? If you, if you disagree with something, feel free to stand up. We'll have the ushers usher you out to the, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, but if you have a question, if you've got a question, you let it, yell it out. Well, we can interact a little bit. Like, this isn't all like, uh, you got to go by, I don't have a teleprompter in the back. Like, we can talk to each other. You can say amen. You can cheer me on. No, I'll go longer. But you can do that. And anytime, all right, Steve, we got it. Anytime I say, he is risen, you say? All right, we're going to do that today. John chapter 20 is where we're going to be. I hope that you've had a good week this week. I don't know what you've done, but I do know that our lives are made up a series of moments. And in those moments, sometimes we make memories. There are different things that happened. Uh, yesterday, our small group got together. We had what we called Friendsgiving. And that just means you're doing Thanksgiving with a bunch of people you're not related to. And so we did that. We did a low country boil. So we were eating, you know, sausage and corn and potatoes and didn't have any turkey. And so it was like un-American. But we had a great time together uh, and enjoyed that. And that's one of my memories from this weekend. What did you do this weekend? Yeah, got some rugby going on. Different. You can talk back. You can say the birthday happened. Work day, yeah, work day over at the campus. Thank you for doing that. Anybody, everybody else is quiet, like, oh, I didn't do the work days. So I ain't got to be done. <laughs> yeah, whatever you did this weekend, part of your memories, and your memories make up your life. As you think back through your life, if you're at least probably 15 or older here today, you can attest to this. That while you have a bunch of memories, lots of different birthdays have happened, different work days you've done, stuff that happens in your daily routine at work, there's usually about a handful, maybe a, a dozen defining moments in our lives. And sometimes those memories, those moments, you know they're coming, like who are you going to marry? What job are you going to go into? Or different things where there's like big decisions you have to make. Sometimes they happen and you don't realize how significant they are until you look back on them 10, 15, 20, 30 years later. Because thinking about it for my own life, I've got a handful or so of defining moments in my life. And I remembered uh, just one time that it was one of those ones that happened. I didn't realize what a big deal it was until I looked back on it years later. And I had just trusted Jesus as my Savior. I was 18 years old, and I was working at this place, General Motors. Uh, you've heard of it. Um, they make cars. I'm sorry if you bought a car that I had something to do with. I worked on the assembly line for a little while. I am not the most mechanical person ever, but I got this job. They paid me a lot more money than any other job I could get that summer. And the role that I had was that I would work for anybody that was going on vacation, like the regular full-time employees. When they went on vacation, I'd go fill their spot on the assembly line and do these jobs. A whole bunch of stories that go with that. They'll come out over the years. Let's just hang out together. It'll be great. But when the summer's over with, I knew that I was going to get laid off. And so they come around, they hand out this paperwork, and you fill out this paperwork, and you get unemployment. Now I'm 18 years old, just became a Christian, so I don't know much about how to live the Christian life. I'm like, they're going to give me money to go hang out with my friends, hundreds of dollars a week to do nothing. This is amazing. So I fill out the paperwork. But I also had, I refer to him now as a mentor, uh, but at the time he was just the guy who told me how to have a relationship with Jesus. And he knew the Bible better than I did. And so I asked him if he'd teach me the Bible. 
Now, let me say this. Even if you're like 70 years old, 60 years old, and you've never had a mentor in your life, if you can find somebody that knows Jesus better than you do, knows the Bible better than you, go ask them to teach you some stuff. And this guy ended up becoming like a father figure in my life. And so we wouldn't just talk about how to study the Bible. He talked to me about life. And so one day after school, I, I didn't have any plan but to go hang out with my friends afterwards and get the free money from General Motors. I'm sorry for all those you who were affected by the recession in 2008. I was a part of that. I did take the money. And uh, I'm sitting there in this meeting with this guy, and he says, well, you're a Christian. You're able to work. You should work. What's your plan? And it was one of those questions where you know that you're supposed to have a plan. But I didn't have a plan. But God hasn't given me a gift to be quick on my feet. So I made up a plan right then. And I said, here's my plan. After we're done with this meeting, I'm going to go to this Mexican restaurant. I had a whole bunch of friends that worked at this Mexican restaurant. I'm going to go to this Mexican restaurant, and I'm going to get a job there. And he goes, sounds like a great plan. I was like, all right, I passed. Like, let's go on to the Bible study now. And when that meeting was over with, I went to this Mexican restaurant, fell in love with Mexican food. Like, who knew? Jim Gaffigan teaches us how many, who knew how many meals you could make with so few ingredients? right? Tortillas, meat, cheese, a couple tomatoes, and you can fry it or roll it up or leave it open and call it a taco, a chalupa, call it all kinds of things. And Americans are so dumb, they'll pay different amounts of money for it. Like, it's crazy. <laughs> so I'm working at this restaurant. I learn about Mexican food. I love Mexican food. But it also impacted my life today. So when I look my kids in the eye today, I can think, if I had gone to a barbecue joint, you wouldn't be here. Because I met my wife that day when I walked into that Mexican restaurant. Who knew? That was going to be a defining moment in my life. What about you? You got those defining moments? Those different times of things that have happened in the past. Sometimes you knew it was happening. Sometimes you didn't. But it's impacted maybe the very fact that you're sitting in this room here today. Different defining moments. Today what we're talking about in John chapter 20 is the defining moment of all human history. It's not just a historical fact. Although it is that, there's so much information about it. It is a historical fact that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. All right, a little slow on that one, just so you know. I might slide it in every once in a while. So Jesus is risen from the dead. And so that means i got to pause sometimes. You're welcome, all of you who want me to slow down. And we'll quote stuff. Yeah, some of you took a minute on that one. Gotcha. I'll keep going. So we'll quote, like, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 55. We sang the song earlier. Oh, death, where is your victory? Well, death, where's your sting? Awesome truth. The tomb was empty 2,000 years ago, so your life doesn't have to be today. Jesus Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. What difference does it make to you today? That's the question today. If that's the defining moment of all of human history, what is that event that took place 2,000 years ago? What impact does it have on your life today? And that's what we're going to look at as we open up to John chapter 20, if you have your Bible. John chapter 20. We're going to really survey the whole chapter, but I'm going to start at the end, and then we're going to work our way backwards into the story. And so we're going to read verses 30 and 31 to start off with. But John chapter 20 is uh, perhaps one of the, the greatest, most uh, uh, kind of like shining a light from the Bible, one of the brightest, most encouraging, victorious chapters in all of the Bible. And it comes right after one of the darkest. If you weren't here last week, last week we looked at John chapter 19. In John chapter 19, our Savior was nailed to a criminal's cross, we sang earlier. He was beaten, mocked, scourged, beer torn out, murdered. Now imagine being one of the 12 disciples, one of the 11 disciples. You, you see this happen. You see, have you ever lost a loved one? You see your friend murdered before your eyes. Your other friend, Judas, 
who not only betrayed Jesus, betrayed you, has also, he's committed suicide. He's also dead. Can you imagine? Imagine being Thomas. Imagine being Peter. If you're Peter, you just, you said, I'll go with you to death. Then a little girl comes out and you go, I never met the man. You've blown it worse than ever in your life. You've been weeping for days. And there's a reason you're still in Jerusalem. It's because you're scared to leave. They're in Jerusalem. Three days later, Mary Magdalene, a woman, if you want to talk about a story, read Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. This woman who had seven demons cast out of her. She goes to the tomb, and the stone's rolled away, and she can see the tomb's empty. Her first thought is not that he's risen. Her first thought is there's grave robbers that have stolen the body. So she runs back and tells Peter and tells the author of this book, John, that it's happened. And then they get in a foot race to go to the tomb. And John's so humble. I love what he writes. He says, there was a race to the tomb, and Peter lost. <laughs> it was between John and Peter. Which I think, like Peter, doesn't Peter strike you as a guy who would like dessert? Like Peter's kind of probably like, oh, cookies. I'm going to eat some cookies and put another cookie over here. So no wonder he's slow. Like he gets to the tomb. He's all out of breath. Oh, yeah, gets there. Pushes John out of the way because John didn't go in. If you read the story in John chapter 20, John gets there and he's peeking in and then Peter barges through, get out of the way. And he goes right into the tomb and he sees these linen cloths. And then John comes in and he sees them. They still haven't seen Jesus. But then Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene. In fact, if you read all the gospel accounts in the New Testament, what you end up seeing is that Jesus appeared post his resurrection at least 10 times. One time to over 500 eyewitnesses at once. It's irrefutable evidence that the fact took place, the historical fact. The question is, what does it mean to us? And so what happens, the next appearance that he has is 10 disciples, not Thomas isn't there. We know Judas isn't there. Judas is already dead. These 10 disciples are gathered together in this room. The doors, multiple doors are locked and Jesus appears to them. And they see the scars on his hands and in his side when that spear got stuck into his heart. And they believe. And they go tell their buddy Thomas, we saw it. And he says the same thing any of us would say. I'm not going to believe unless I see it. Like, everyone got to see it but me? And then Jesus does it again when Thomas is there. And then the climactic moment in all of the Gospel of John, that we don't even know if Thomas actually places his hands in Jesus' hands. But he sees the scars, and he falls down on his knees and says, My Lord and my God. And why was all of this written down? Why did the resurrection happen? That's what John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31 tell us. In fact, it's the purpose statement for the whole book. Look at it with me. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, the ones that are written, there's seven signs that lead up to the resurrection, and the resurrection is the climactic eighth sign, but these are written so that not they... You, the reader of this book, anybody who reads this book, so that you today, even though this was 2,000 years ago, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And so what John tells us here is that from the, from the beginning of the Gospel of John, when he does that first miracle in John chapter 2, where he turns that water into wine, all the way up until more miracles, more miracles, more miracles, until John chapter 11, when he raises Lazarus from the dead, even to his own resurrection, they're all signs. Because you see that? He says, there are many other signs, talking about this sign and the other signs. Many other signs that, that, that were done in the disciples' presence that we could talk about. What's a sign? What does a sign do? A sign never points you to itself. A sign points you to something else, right? Like if you, you drive around in your car, you ever miss a sign? Like most of us now, we use our GPS, right? Well, at least I do. On my phone, I'm using my GPS. I'm getting a little scared, by the way, of artificial intelligence. 
I'm thinking they're getting smarter than I am, if they're not already, because I'm pretty confident the lady on my GPS is messing with me, just so you know. <laughs> like, do they, does that ever happen to you? Or is it my, like, I'd like a little, hello community here. Like, I'll be driving in my car, and I'll, granted, she will tell me, like, two miles, your exit's in two miles. Two miles is your exit. I'm like, all right, but two miles is a long time. And a lot of thoughts go through my mind in two miles. And so I'll be driving like on the left lane, like the passing lane, because that's like the lane I think I should be driving in. And so I drive in the passing lane, and then it's like, right turn, exit now. I'm like, are you kidding me? Okay, that's what I do. And now my wife's like, there's your exit, but it's not the sign. It's, the, it's pointing to the exit. But here's what I think's happening with my GPS. This is where I think it might be messing with me. I think she's getting slower and slower and telling me when to turn. Because it's like, exit, now, now, now is the exit. And I'm like, it's already, I already went by it. What are you talking about? I don't know if that happened to any of y'all. No, okay. thank you, Micah. All right, we got one. All right. But it's not the sign that it's pointing you to. It's pointing you, the exit sign points you to the exit. Or I don't know if you've seen this or, or not, but there's an election coming up. <laughs> Living under a rock, I don't know. There are a lot of signs that are out in this. And here, I'll just say this. I can tell you who to vote for, but get out and vote this Tuesday. Go out and vote. Um, you have people that have given their lives so you could have the right to vote. So get out and vote. And you'll see all these signs that are out there. But I got a little pet peeve with the signs. And maybe there's rules I'm, I'm not aware of, but they'll just say like a name. Wendy Smith, you know, Joe Johnson, Steve Schmidt, like whatever. These different names are on these signs. And then like that didn't tell me a website. like didn't tell me anything about them. And I hope that none of you ever go and go and vote in the voting booth and think, well, Doug Smith put a sign by my neighborhood. He must love our community. I'm voting for Doug Smith. Like, like how do they, what do those signs do? And I tell my wife, and she hears me say it every once in a while in the car, like, these signs are so dumb. Then she sent me a picture this week of a sign that was out on Glenwood Avenue. Did you see it? You see the sign? These signs are dumb. And I want to know who made that sign, because I'm voting for them. Right? Now here, don't send me any emails. No email. I'm not saying the candidates are dumb. You saw the sign. Don't leave because I said that. Here's the deal. I love them, love them. What do you do? The signs are dumb. I'm not saying the candidates are dumb, but what do the signs do? The signs aren't the candidates. The signs point you to the candidates. That's what a sign does. And so when Jesus turns water to wine, one just so it's like not entertaining people. And it's not the point you just to the sign. When he raises Lazarus from the dead, that's amazing. But it's not just so you'll know this amazing story and tell your kids someday. John tells us why. He tells us why for his own resurrection, the climactic, the most amazing of all the signs, is that Jesus is risen from the dead. And John says, these signs were done so that you might believe, you today might believe, and that by believing, you would have life. And so here's our first point. There's three of them today. The first point is this, that Jesus was, was risen to life then so that you might have real life now. Jesus was risen to life then, was raised to life then, that you might have life now. If you look at the Gospel of John as a whole, you'll see that life is a theme throughout the entire book of John. So in John chapter 1 and verse 4, so it gets to the very beginning of the book. I'll just give you a few sample verses. John chapter 1 and verse 4 says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So we've got this theme that's getting laid down. You go, if you watched football yesterday, maybe you saw this verse in the crowd. John chapter 3 and verse 16. It's probably the most popular verse in the whole book. For God so loved the world that he gave. So God's a giver. He's not a taker. He gave his only son that whoever, invitations for everybody, whoever believes in him, there's that word believes again, should not perish but have eternal, there's that word again, life. Or maybe you've heard this one, John chapter 10 and verse 10, Jesus is speaking. 
And he's talking about how, how the sheep know the shepherd's voice. Now he speaks to his people and they hear his voice. He says, but there's a thief. And he's talking about Satan. He says, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. And that's still his threefold plan for your life, by the way. But Jesus says, I came that they may believe, that they may have life, I'm sorry, and have it abundantly. He came so you could have abundant life. In fact, these are just a few samples. That's three verses. There are about 36 different times in the Gospel of John where he uses that word for life. He came that you could have life, not just you could have lung or air in your lungs, by the way. There are a lot of people walking around that are alive that don't realize they're spiritually dead. Like the walking dead, like zombies. We've become fascinated as a culture with zombies for some reason. There's a lot of people, that's really their life. They're just kind of going through the motions. They just go to work and they do their things. and They're missing out on the life that God actually intends for them to have. Have you read Ezekiel chapter 37? Let me drop that little nugget so you can write it in your notes and go read it on your own later. See, God wants to, do, he wants to breathe life into death. Implied in the idea that Jesus is giving us life, that he came to give us life, is that we are dead. That we're spiritually dead. We're not experiencing the life he intends for us. Here's the problem. Many of us just don't see it. And if you trace back through John chapter 20 again, you'll see another theme. It's the connection of the two words seeing and believing. And walk you through the chapter. We'll just talk about, we'll survey through the chapter. Just in, in, in verse 1, Mary comes to the tomb, she sees that the stone has been rolled away. And then what happens? She goes and she tells Peter and John, and they run there. And then it's interesting, John actually uses three different Greek terms to talk about them seeing. Each Greek term has a little different nuance to it. First, John shows up, and he just peeks into the tomb, and he sees it. It's like you notice something. It's when you just notice something, but you don't think much about it. That's the word that he uses there. He just kind of glances in there, and he sees it. It's kind of like, oh, there's the exit sign. Just kind of noticed it. You see that it's there. Doesn't do much to you. And then Peter shows up, he barges in, he goes in, he sees the grave cloth, and he starts to think about them. He contemplates them. What does this mean that these, these linens are here? But then John comes in, and it says that he saw and he believed. It's a Greek word, idon. It's come to a conclusion. See, a lot of us, we don't, we don't get that place. We, get the, we notice stuff, we know stuff's happening. We may have theories, we may contemplate different things. But then to is that we see stuff and then it actually transforms our lives. Mary eventually says, I've seen the Lord, verse 18. And then Jesus shows up and they saw his scars. They saw him. And then they tell Thomas, we saw the Lord. He says, I won't believe unless I see. And then he gets to see. And then you know what Jesus ends the chapter with? Verse 29. He says, blessed are those who don't see and believe. They don't visit. It's like what John did. In the, he didn't see the resurrected Christ. He saw the evidence of the resurrection and he believed. And that's the same for us. We don't physically see the resurrected Christ, but we can see the evidence. And then are we going to believe? Do we see the problem in our own lives? I was reading a story this week from Christianity Today. Every once in a while, they'll put out testimonies of different people whose lives have been transformed by God. And this guy's name was Jonathan, and he was talking about his story and how he grew up believing that science had all the answers. He said, 25 years of my life, I just believed that I could go to science, and he talked a bunch of scientific theory and different evidences and information, and he said, and I thought, my parents had taught me that, that the Easter Bunny wasn't real and that Santa Claus wasn't real, and so I just came to the conclusion that Jesus must not be real either because those religious people just make that stuff up. It's like prehistoric, kind of a crutch for them. And he said then, one, one day he was working, one of his coworkers asked him to go to dinner with he and his wife, and he said, we went to dinner together. And this is a couple, by the way, that were, they were owning their impact. They were doing what we challenge you to do as a church. And they took this guy to dinner, and he said, there was nothing like extraordinary about their lives, but when their lives came into contact with my life, it was jarring to me. 
Because after that dinner, I was planning to go meet up with some of my friends and we were going to split up some drugs and then go party that weekend. This couple, they would go and serve other people. And that like blew them away. They'd go serve other people on the weekend. And he said uh, their challenge in his life, uh, brought him to church a couple times, nothing really clicked, but he started reading his Bible. And he said he couldn't believe that this little tribe, Israel, these Jews, didn't get wiped out in the Old Testament like all the other little tribes did. And he said then he couldn't believe how this penniless preacher, Jesus, says these radical statements, gets crucified on a criminal's cross, and that's not the end of it. He couldn't figure out, like, why, why is that still having an impact today? And it was like, he thought maybe this Christianity stuff is true. It was like an intellectual conversion, but he wasn't really converted to Christ yet. He believed things. But he said what happened to him was he actually went one night to an EDM concert. It's electronic, electronic dance music is what that stands for. Those of you who don't know what I'm talking about. And what it is is a, a DJ will be there and they'll play some music. There's not really like a concert, but they'll put like a video on most of the time. And he said that night it was in a club in Dallas. Some people call it like a rave. So a lot of people go there. They'll be on ecstasy or different things. He said, uh, we came in that night to party at this club in downtown Dallas. The DJ's there playing the stuff. And then on the screen, instead of playing a video, it was just a big mask from the movie V for Vendetta. And let me read to you what he said about it, his experience while he was there. He says, as I watched the audience dance under the watchful eye of V for Vendetta, everything fell into place. And then he literally said this, scales fell from my eyes. This was worship. We were worshiping a demon. We think we're so much more advanced than the people of ancient Babylon, but they were doing the exact same things. And he said he left that club that night, and it was a year later since he had had that dinner with his coworker. But he called his coworker, and he said, where can I go to church? And he started going to church and converted to Jesus Christ, surrendered his life to Jesus. But first God had to open his eyes so that he could see I'm not living the life that God intended for me to live. I don't have the life God intended for me to have. You know what? God's still opening people's eyes today. And in the island of Madagascar, over 7,000 people trusted Christ. You know, we had somebody trust Christ at our service last week. He's still doing it here in Raleigh, by the way. Has he opened your eyes to give you life, abundant life, eternal life? And even some of you are believers in Jesus Christ. You'll be like, I checked that box. I got the insurance policy. Are you, do you, are you living the life? that God intended for you to live? Or are you just kind of going through the motions like a walking zombie? Because that's spiritually being dead. So maybe you prayed a prayer one time, but are you sure the spirit of the living God is living inside of your life? Because what does it mean to have this life? Well, go back through the chapter. It gets described in lots of ways throughout the New Testament. But when you look at this chapter, one of the things that gets emphasized is having peace with God. And there's this word that's peace that's used multiple times. And so you can read it if you're skimming through the chapter. Look at verse 19, verse 21, verse 26 you got these guys huddled together in this house in Jesus' first words. Think about what Jesus could have said. Peter's blown it so bad. He's blown it worse than he's ever blown it in his life. Jesus could have brought words of condemnation. These guys, they all abandoned Jesus. I think if I were Jesus and I showed up in this house and these guys were all there, I'd have been like, I told you you were all going to fall away. None of you listen to me. That's not what Jesus says. Verse 19, on the evening of that day, the first Easter, First day of the week, the doors, plural, being locked, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. A couple verses later, he says it again. Do you think they needed to hear it again, maybe? Peace be with you. And then after he appears to Thomas, eight days later, verse 26, peace be with you. 
The idea behind that word peace there is shalom. It's not just peace like we talk about an absence of conflict between a couple people. It's a wholeness in life. There's a wholeness. Peace. Have peace with you. Wholeness in life. Did you experience the life that God intends for you to experience? I had somebody say to me after the first service, do you, do you think when he said peace to them in that moment, it was like when he calmed the storm? He said, peace. I said, maybe in their hearts. Do you think about the turmoil they're going through? And you say, no, I've come to get a peace. I've come to get a life. It's a life of peace. And there are many elements to this kind of peace, about a dozen that we could walk through. But let me tell you at the very base level, because you can't experience any of the other ones until you have the first one. The first one is peace with God. There's a peace it comes with God, and that's why he did what he did in chapter 19. That's why we talked about chapter 19 and the gruesome crucifixion he experienced. you know why that was? It's because he was taking on the wrath for your sins, the wrath of God, the wrath of his Father. That's why he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He quotes Psalm 22, which was written hundreds of years before crucifixion was ever invented, but read Psalm 22 and walks through the crucifixion of Christ. And so he's experiencing that, but then ultimately the worst part is not being beaten and mocked and having a thorn crown on his head and having nails driven through his wrist. The, the, the worst part is that his father turns his back on him because he becomes your sin and my sin. Why? Why? Do you know what he says to end the cross? We didn't get to it last week. His last words from the cross, it is finished. Amen. Do you know in Greek what it is finished means? It means paid in full. What's he paying? He's paying the debt for your sins and my sins. Romans chapter 6 says the wages of sin, and we've all sinned. You've sinned, I've sinned. There's a wage for sin, just like you earn, whether you're an hourly worker and you earn an hourly wage, or whether you're a commission worker and based on how many sales you have, you earn a wage, or whether you're a salary worker and as long as you're fulfilling your job description, you earn a wage. There's a wage you get for what you do. Your sin, it's death. But the gift of God, that's what he was providing on the cross, is life through Christ Jesus our Lord. That's peace with God. Romans chapter 5 and verse 1 says it like this. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. How does that happen? It's because of what he did. Not because of what you do. It's because of what he did. By believing, remember verses 30 and 31, by believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that you might have life. That's peace with God. So you are enemies with God. You might not know that. Romans chapter 5 and verse 18 says that while we were still enemies of God, Christ died for us. And so there is an absence of conflict element to it. And until you surrender your life to Jesus and do what that, that lady in our church did last week, where you bow your knee and call Jesus Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead, you can't be saved until you do that. And then the Bible promises you will be saved. That's peace with God. But, but don't miss this, believer especially. It's possible to have peace with God and not experience the peace of God. It's possible to have peace with God and not experience the peace of God in your life. And so Jesus, when he talks about peace here, he's wanting you to have not just peace with God, but the peace of God in your life. That's what he's been preparing his disciples for as this moment's been coming. John chapter 14, verse 27. My peace I leave with you, not as the world gives. Remember John chapter 16, verse 33? I've told you these things that you might have peace. In this world, you're going to have tribulation. So this is a peace you can have while you're still experiencing tribulation. And now they're experiencing tribulation. They're huddled together for fear of the Jews. What do you think he's talking about when he says, peace be with you? And a couple verses later, peace be with you. And then a couple of eight days later, peace be with you. He's talking about the peace of God. He wants you to experience the peace of God in your life. Philippians chapter 4 talks about it like this. Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7 says, Do not be anxious about anything. Well, that's easier to say than to do. 
But in everything, here's a way to do that. By prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your hearts, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Well, how do you have that kind of peace? Isn't that the real question? That's awesome. The Bible talks about it. How do I really experience it? Well, it's verse 30 and 31. <laughs> By believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, you have life. He's just, how does he describe in this life? By the peace. And so you got to be- the same as you get peace with God by believing upon Jesus Christ is how you experience the peace of God. See, some of us, there's this problem that happens in Christianity, and it's not ever stated, but we just kind of live it, is that we believe, you know, the Reformation uh, was, you know, 501 years ago as of Wednesday, and, you know, Martin Luther, he was trying to help the church out. He had some good ideas, and so he nailed them to a door. There were 95 of them, and he said, here's what you need to do. And so you don't get peace with God by being married in the church, by being baptized in the church, by paying a priest to pray for you. It's by faith alone and Christ alone. And so we see that taught throughout the Bible and it causes reformation where the church is like, yeah, we don't, we're getting scammed here. We want a relation, direct relationship with God. That's, what, that's why Jesus died. So it's by faith and we believe that. And as evangelical Christians, we preach that. But you know what we oftentimes live? That we start our relationship by faith, but then we live it out in our own strength. And so now it's on me. Now I've got to live this thing out. No, no, you've gone wrong already. That's also by, by faith. So, so how do you do that? Well, well, it's realizing that he's the Christ, the son of the living God, and that, here's a way to get you to think about it. Think about the verses we just read, verses 30 and 31. Many other signs he could have done, but he did these that you believe. And we thought about at the beginning of the message, all the defining moments in your life. Think about all the things that happened in your life, things that happened this weekend, things that were like change the direction of your life. What if at the end of your life, I don't know if this conversation will happen, but it could. It's, it's certainly biblically possible this could happen. What if the end of your life God said to you, there are many other things I could have done in your life. And go back to your defining moments. I could have had you marry so-and-so. I could have had you do this job. I could have had you go in a different industry. I could have had you live in a different country. He's God. I could have had you live at a different time in history. You could have been born, lived in the 20s. I don't know, the 1700s. You could have been part of the Reformation. Like All kinds of, you could have been with Noah. You could have lived any time. But I did these things so that you would believe. And by believing, that you would have the life I intended for you to have. Wouldn't that cause you to trust him more if you knew that was true? He's actually sovereignly ruling over every circumstance in your life, even when there's tribulation. That's what he's talking about when he talks about this peace. He's recognizing that he's God in all of it, and you know what he's doing? He's actually got a plan for your life, and he's promised he began a good work in you, so if you have peace with God, he's not working in your life to make you more like Jesus. And so if you trust that, that'll give you the peace of God, even when it doesn't make any sense to anyone else. And do you know what that is? That's what Philippians chapter 4 was talking about. When everybody else will look at your life and be like, you should be falling apart, and you've got peace of God? Like, this surpasses my understanding. Because it's not the kind of peace that the world gives. It's the kind of peace you can have in the midst of tribulation. And some of you might be looking at me going, but you don't know what's happened to me. You don't know how bad it was. And your life was probably easy. You're standing up on the stage and you're talking to me about how I'm supposed to have peace and you don't know what I'm going through. And let me just point you back to the chapter last week. Don't look, I'm not going to tell you in my life it's been worse. I don't know what's happened in your life. But there's nothing worse than what happened in chapter 19. And God took that, the worst sin in human history, the murder of God, and used it for your good? You don't think he can take every circumstance in your life and fulfill his promises through it? So then you can trust that. And you know what that means? That means you can have the peace of God. 
It's by believing that you came so you could have that kind of life, peace with God, peace of God, but not just that. He came so that you could have the victory in your life over sin. And what we sang about, there's no more bondage in our lives. He says, Jesus was raised then, here's our second point, so that you could have victory now. Jesus was raised then, so you could have victory today. 2,000 years ago, he was raised. And so we say verses like 1 Corinthians 15, 55, oh, death, where's your victory? The implied answer is, there is no more. Where's the sting? Oh, it's just a new beginning. There is no more sting. What about sin? Sin's no, no, now, is sin still present in our lives? Sure, yes, for all of us. If I say this is not, I'm lying. Like, we all experience it. We see it talked about throughout the Bible. If you claim that you don't have any sin, you're a liar. The truth is not in you. But it doesn't have power over you. Not if you're trusting in the cross of Christ. Does it, is there still pain in this life? Yes, but you shouldn't be paralyzed by those things. There's no more penalty because of that, because Jesus paid the penalty. He paid our debt, the wages of our sin. He paid them. So there's a gift that you've been given. No more penalty, no more condemnation. So you think about it for these men and how this happened in this story. Imagine, imagine being these guys and try and put yourself in the place. Try and imagine being Thomas. Like, why isn't Thomas there the first time Jesus shows up? Have you thought about that? And different people, when you lose a loved one, different people mourn differently. Maybe Thomas was angry at God. Maybe he thought that whole, why are you guys even gathering together? I don't even know why you meet. That's stupid. We were duped. He's not the Messiah. Maybe that's where he's at. Maybe he just wants some time alone to reflect. I don't know. But he's not there. So there's these 10 guys. They're gathered together. Peter's there. And did you see in verse 19, there's multiple doors that have been locked? <laughs> I think that's telling. It's like the outside door's locked. The laundry room door's locked. I think they're hiding in like a bathroom. Like they're all huddled up together and they're scared. Do you, do you remember when you're a little kid? Did your parents ever leave you home alone or they all go to sleep? And maybe it's like Halloween night or something and you hear a branch scratching up against the house and you're like, that's an ax murderer. <laughs> Wasn't it always an ax murderer? Was anybody ever scared of a like gun murderer or a knife murderer? That's not as gruesome. No, we always went like, it's an ax murderer. It's the worst kind. I think if I were Jesus, I wouldn't have just appeared to those guys. I'd have messed with them. <laughs> I'd have been like, these dudes are all huddled up in a bathroom. I'm going to go scratch on the window. Just like, ah! But think about what it was like. There's multiple locked doors. Jesus could have supernaturally unlocked the doors. He could have knocked on the door. He could have messed with them. But he just, it's like he wasn't there, and now he's there. Do you think that messed with them? If there was 10 of us. All of a sudden, one of them's a Baptist. He's going, they're counting everybody, right, in that moment. Gee, there's another dude here, and it's Jesus. And look at the scars. That's why he says, peace be with you twice. This is my theory. Peace be with you. I'm not sure. Peace be with you. All right, maybe. They were, they were terrified. They are afraid of the Jews, it says in the, in the verse. So they, just, they just watched Pilate come out and say, I find no guilt in this man, and then heard the Jewish leaders chant, crucify him. So there's a reason they're still in Jerusalem. They haven't gone back to their homes. It's not because they're waiting for the resurrection. They don't think this is good. They think they're in darkness and defeat. This is the worst possible circumstance. Peter's blown it terribly. They've all abandoned him. Their, their friend Judas has killed himself. Thomas isn't even there. And then Jesus shows up. His very presence is a declaration of victory. But in both passages, it says that he showed his scars. And one Bible commentator I read this week, he said it like this. He says, Jesus' scars on his hands and his side are marks not only of his suffering, but also of his victory. In fact, his mere presence among his followers is evidence of his triumph. See, Jesus gives victory. And do you know how he declares his victory over and over again? 
changed lives. Every time he changes somebody's life and they walk from in bondage to in freedom, from darkness to light, without hope to being reconciled with God. I once was, now I am. Every transformation he does in the life of a believer, that's his declaration of sin. Where, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? There's no more. That's why I love, I love who he appears to in this passage. Like the first person he appears to is Mary Magdalene. Let me tell you something. If you're like investigating or a skeptic, there is no way any other disciples, John, anybody else, John's a smart dude, there's no way he's coming up with Mary Magdalene as the first person Jesus appears to. Some people think that, that Christianity is like chauvinistic or oppressive to women. Do you know that women's testimonies weren't even valid in court at this time? And that Jesus, he appears to not just a woman, a woman like Mary Magdalene? Luke 8, 1 through 3. She had seven demons. Jesus, if he's trying to like manufacture and make up a story, you don't appear to Mary Magdalene. But Jesus does. Do you know why? Grace. She doesn't deserve that. Why are the first words out of his mouth to Peter? Not, I told you you'd blow it. But peace. I want you to have peace. Grace. Thomas, isn't it interesting? Wouldn't you be freaked out if you were Thomas? Because when, when Jesus appears to him, he already knows what Thomas has been saying. You said, how'd you know what I said? You weren't there. There. You said, unless you saw, so here's the scars, declaration of victory. Here's the spear mark, declaration of victory. He says, My Lord, my God, that's a declaration of victory. And we give Thomas a hard time about being a doubter. You know what happens in Thomas? Church tradition tells us what happens in Thomas's life is that he goes out, he gets sent out to India to preach the gospel. He gets speared to death, ironically. It's a changed life. Mary Magdalene's a changed life. Peter's a changed life. We'll talk more about Peter next week. One of my favorite changed lives in all the Bible is, the, is one of the guys that was there. He was supervising the crucifixion of Jesus and those two criminals that day. He's a centurion. Matthew tells us about him. Matthew tells us some details that we didn't see last week, too, that happened when Jesus is crucified. The darkness covers the earth and there's an earthquake and some pretty wild stuff takes place. And he, but he also gives us a glimpse into the centurion. Now think about what it'd be like to be a centurion. He's already gone out on the battlefield. He's probably killed by his own hands thousands of people. He's now ruling over these groups of four guys and three different groups that are going to crucify people. Every day, he, he kills people. Every day for a living. Talk about a job. Like, you go home to your wife and say, how was work today, honey? Well, I killed five guys today. Like, you, you just probably go, it was good. And your heart gets hardened. Let me read you what Matthew says about the centurion. Matthew chapter 15. I'll put the verses on the screen. Verses 51 through 54. Jesus on the cross at this point. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook. The rocks were split. Now listen to this. The tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep, that means they were already dead, were raised. Do you ever hear people talk about that? Like, what? Where did those people go and what did they do? <laughs> and coming out of the tombs, after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Like, Elijah just shows up at your door? John the Baptist? Like, what? That's weird. But listen to this. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, now this is a guy who's seen thousands of people die. He sees this every day. He doesn't say it like this. It's truly, this was the Son of God changes lives and every time Jesus changes a life is a declaration of victory over sin has he changed your life 
Are you, are you free from bondage? Some of you, there's a battle with sin. It's a battle, and it happens. And sometimes we start to believe lies, and we start to go after things that aren't going to satisfy. And, and that happens even in the life of a believer. And if we say that it doesn't, that we're liars, the truth is not in us. That's why it gives us each other, reminding you, encourage each other daily about the truth so your hearts don't get hardened. You, you don't stop hearing his voice, him speaking to you, Hebrews chapter 3. And so do you have victory? If you don't have victory today, then that's, we're, that's why we're here together as a church, to encourage you and give you an opportunity to talk to somebody after the service. But Jesus Christ gives victory, amen? amen. He's risen. He risen so that you can have not just life, but a victorious life, but not just that, so you can be sent. Look at verse 21 in chapter 20. Our third point is this, that Jesus was raised then so that you could be sent now. Jesus was raised then so that you could be sent now. Verse 21 says this, Jesus said to them, again, so he's already said peace to them once, verse 19. He says it again, peace be with you. We've talked about peace. Look at the next part. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. And so how did the Father send the Son? What was that like? As, as, just add, and if you underline, you write in your Bible, you might write that out. As the Father sent the Son, so Jesus is sending us. Well, how did the Father send the Son? What did he send the Son to do? Did he send the, Jesus to go down there and be busy. <laughs> That's what a lot of us do, right? Get busy, even get busy for God. I saw a bumper sticker. I've seen this bumper sticker before. Just a side note, I wouldn't say live your life by the wisdom you read on bumper stickers. Just letting you know. Like just That's extra information. Just throwing it out there. But I saw a bumper sticker uh, that said, Jesus is coming back. Act busy. <laughs> Which I think to myself, there's so many things wrong with that. <laughs> like act busy. Like Jesus is like, pump fake like he's gonna jump and you're gonna just shoot like you can't fake Jesus out but I would love to see Jesus play basketball wouldn't that be awesome better than Steph Curry just shooting shots would be amazing you can't fake Jesus out it's not like I've been lazy this whole time oh Jesus is coming back oh act busy that's just like this, that bummer sticker is silly but then the idea here's the reality most of us are busy if you think about your schedules what you have to do next week all of a sudden, the anxiety is coming back up. Just like the worship, worship leader said earlier, just breathe. Whew, okay, all right. Filling up your calendar is not the issue. The question is, are you busy doing what you've been sent to do? If we're sent the way that Jesus is sent. What was Jesus sent to do? Well, he talks about it multiple times throughout the Bible. Let me read you a few. In uh, Mark chapter 10, Mark chapter 10, verse 45, he says this, For even the Son of Man, talking about himself, did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. We read John chapter 3 and verse 16. Most people stop at verse 16. Have you ever read verse 17? Do you know what Jesus says about being sent there? For God did not send his son, so why did he send his son? Into the world to condemn the world. Maybe that's why he speaks the words of grace he does to Peter. But in order that the world might be saved through him. So he wasn't on a seek and destroy mission. He was on a seek and save mission. In fact, that's what he says in Luke chapter 19 verse 10. For the son of man, Jesus speaking about himself again, came to seek and save that which was lost. And so that's why he's here, because there's lost people that need to know Jesus. And so Paul says it like this, and give it to you one that's not from the words of Jesus. Paul says in the New Testament, the pastor speaking to another pastor in 1 Timothy 1.15, here's a trustworthy saying. Everybody should buy into this. Like, who's going to argue with this statement, he says, that deserves full acceptance? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. He takes and he changes lives. He came... On a saving mission. So then you gotta ask yourself, the Father sends us, just as, or Jesus sends us just as the Father sent him. What's our mission? Why are you here? Why is it when you trust Jesus, don't you just go up and be in heaven? If it was if you were still here as Christians, so you could have fellowship with one another, like just go to heaven and have that. There's no sin there. 
So we never wrong each other. We never accidentally say things that hurt each other's feelings. There's no betrayal or gossip. Or, like fellowship's way better in heaven. So you're not here. Fellowship is important. It's part of the name of our church. Like we want you to be connected with one another. Yeah, that's, but that's not why you're here. Teaching? Like Jesus is going to be teaching. Like you're going to want teaching in heaven? You're going to learn stuff in heaven? How amazing is that? Worship? Like we love our worship. It's going to be better in heaven. Amen. There's something you can do here you cannot do in heaven. Let's seek and save the lost. Because there aren't going to be lost people there. You've got a mission that's here, and you do it by living a sacrificial life. The Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve, to give his life for the sake of other people so that they can hear and see the gospel. And so, so what is it that we're doing? We're basically, here's your mission. You're on a show-and-tell assignment. Do you remember show-and-tell when you were a kid? Anybody here do show-and-tell? Raise your hand. Say something back to me, please. I don't want to know. Is it just because I'm from the north? Is that like, like nobody here did show-and-tell in the back? Got you. I see your hand. And so you remember what happened to show-and-tell? Your teacher say, hey, bring something to class, and you can bring like anything you wanted to bring to class, and you get to show it, and you tell a story about it, and so you go and you get like your favorite toy or something like that, and so I brought this in today. I just went and stole it from one of my kids. Please don't steal it from me afterwards. Um, I don't know if they like it or not. It was just in the room, and I grabbed it. I need an illustration. Uh, coming in here this morning, and when I walked in, one of the guys on the tech team goes, is that a bear or a dog? And I went, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what it is, but it's got some big ears. It's really hairy, and one of my kids wrote dad on the front of it. It's like written on there. And so I don't know if it's just like, dad's hairy, dad's got big ears, and dad, like, I don't know why that says that. But say that she brings it in to show and tell. She can't just come to the teacher and be like, bear dog. <laughs> I don't know what, I'm going to go with dog. Let's just say dog. Dog. Why'd you bring a dog? Like, you got to tell me something about it. There's got to be a story to go with it. And maybe the story is like, I don't even remember where this thing came from. We might have stolen it from one of y'all's kids, but they got... It's a Build-A-Bear? Oh, this is from like a birthday party then probably. Thanks. See, the interaction in the sermon is helpful. <laughs> Appreciate that. So like I went to this birthday party of my best friend, and it's a Build-A-Bear, and we got to build these bears, and you tell the whole story that goes with the bear, and I got it home, and it reminded me of my dad because my dad's really hairy. So I wrote the, there's the story. You show it, and you tell about it. That's your mission as a follower of Jesus, by the way. They see your life, and then you tell about Jesus and changing your life. Do you have the story of a changed life? Then that's the story you tell. You don't tell my story. I don't tell your story. But they see your lives. What's the vision of our church, Matthew chapter 5? They, lost people in our city, would see our lives, and then they would glorify our fathers in heaven. That's the show. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says we've got this message in jars of clay. This is how God chose to reveal his son Jesus Christ to the world through you. How about this, this verse for you to write down? Some of you might need a, a verse that's like your verse for life. Here's one. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 3 says this. And you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. So who sent? Who sent? Who sent? We are. Well, isn't it just Grant Waller that we brought up here? And in the first service, uh, we had Ron Stafford, who was up here a couple weeks ago, telling about his ministry in Columbia. Isn't it just like the missionaries? Because like that's how that's how a lot of times we function. Like we're the ones that send. Did you see that the verse doesn't say that we're the senders? The Father sent the Son. The Son sends us. And so a lot of times, forget everything you know culturally. If you just read the Bible, you have to come to the conclusion that we're all sent ones. There's a reason why at the end of every gospel, Matthew's the most famous. Matthew chapter 28, 18 through 20, go make disciples. But Luke says it too. Luke chapter 24, 47 through 49, the, 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 the gospel of forgiveness is going to be preached. 
Mark chapter 16, verse 9, the good news is going to be preached to all of creation. We just read it here in John chapter 20 and verse 21, just as the Father sent me, so am I sending you. And oh, by the way, for good measure, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you will be my witnesses. It's not like, hey, this isn't, it's like, here's the standard features of Christianity, and a bonus option is if you want to get leather seats. No, if you'd like to talk about Jesus. No, it's like, that is, it is, it is the plan. And who are the sent ones? Here's who the sent ones are. The sent ones are the saved ones. So if you've been saved by God, you've been sent by God. It's not once you reach a certain level of training. Look at the woman at the well in John chapter 4. She goes and tells her story. It's when you've been, if once you receive peace with God, now you've been sent by God. The saved ones are the sent ones. And so it's Grant and it's Ron and Debbie and they go to different places around the country. But where's God sending you? At wherever he has you. Wherever he leads you, exactly where you live and move and have your being. And so how do we send you out as a church? Let me tell, I'm just going to tell you today what our strategy is for us to engage our world. For Engaging our world for Christ is one of our core values as a church. Here's the strategy for how we do that. Sometimes we just do it and hope you get it. Let me just tell you what the strategy is. It's a three-part strategy. The first one's just organic. It's an organic part of our strategy. And it's us. We believe that God has put you exactly where you live and move and have your being. And he's orchestrated all those defining moments in your life and all the relationships you have. And he knows who the barista is that you talk to. And who your neighbors are. And who the kids are that are in your house. Because you went to work in a Mexican place and not the barbecue joint. Or whatever. Like all the details of your life. He's brought all those people into your life for a reason. And you're not going to reach probably the whole world for Jesus. But you can reach your world for Jesus. And so what we do and why we call it organic is we say, who's your one? And we just challenge everyone here that knows Jesus as their Savior to have at least one person a year they're praying for and they're trying to intentionally share with your mouth, verbally share the gospel with. And when we survey our congregation and ask typically, do you have at least one person? That is almost always over 90% of people say they have at least one person. And so if you're new to our church and you didn't know that, that's something we challenge you with. You'll hear about it in our membership class. That's the organic part of our strategy. The next part we call the strategic part of our strategy. Isn't that a clever name? It's the strategic part because there's strategic partners that we have in our city that we partner with in trying to bring the gospel to places we might not just naturally end up in. And so there'll be places like we partner with FCA, Fellowship of Christian Athletes, because they're in the, the athletic realm of, of our city. Our athletes in action, we've got a missionary that we have that's there, and so we pray for them and try to come alongside them, and we've got the gateway uh, ministry that people that are at a crossroads of life deciding whether to keep a baby or not. They're going to try and connect people to Jesus for life change. So we send volunteers. We don't just send money. We do send money. We send volunteers, and we want people to come alongside, and those people are you. And our hope is that then God will show you these spots, whether it's Raleigh Rescue Mission with homeless people or athletic mission ministry or these different partners that we have. And some people that we consider partners, we don't send money to. They're not gospel places. They're just places we're trying to develop relationships with, like this school. And so we've got a team of people that will have lunches for the teachers here at this school. And we do work days at this school. And we try to come, come into a place and bring Jesus into a place where Jesus isn't going to naturally be. Because it's not a gospel preaching school. But God's brought us into this place and we've got the gospel. And so firemen and different places in town, we've got these relationships with. That's the strategic part of the ministry. And then there's an event part that we do. Events is like we send mission trips to go to Madagascar or to go to Panama or to go to Colombia or to go to hurricane relief that we recently did. Or like we're doing uh, this next weekend, Southbridge Serves right here in our own city. We have these events. Let me tell you why we have the events. We have the events. We want to have an impact in our city. We're going to work at some homes that are around our new campus, and we're going to help some individuals that have been through abuse and difficulty, and we're going to serve meals and deliver flowers and do work projects. And We want to have an impact in those places. But the real strategy for us as a church, because we believe that we actually exist to equip you to do works of service, is that something will enliven in your heart while you're doing these things, and you'll begin to own your own impact, and it'll raise the temperature and the organic part of that outreach. 
So that's the threefold strategy because we believe that every week when we send you out and we read a benediction over you, you're being sent into your world. So we gather together, we equip you to do the works of the ministry, and then we send you out because we're all, if you're a saved one, you're a sent one. So we want to send you into this world and we try and provide opportunities for you to have an impact in this community because we want this place to be a city on a hill. And you're, you're the way that happens. And so let me just ask you these questions in light of our points today. Do you have life? Do you have life in Jesus? If you have life in Jesus, say amen. amen. And if you don't, we, we can tell you how you can have that life today. In a couple moments, I'm going to have some of our elders and our deacons go off to the side. And if you want to trust Jesus as your Savior, you can go talk to them. You have victory over sin. You have victory. Say amen. amen. Some of you are struggling and battle still, though, too. And that, that's okay. That happens. And that's why we're here. And so we'll have some people for you to talk to. And, and if you know Jesus and you say amen to those first two things, God is sending you out. And so I'm going to pray for us right now. And I'm going to just ask, if you're a deacon or you're an elder, if you just go off to the side over here and just be there, and if you just want to know who the deacons and elders are, you can just look to see who the people are that are standing off to the side in just a moment. But if you want to pray with somebody, then I just encourage you, when I send everybody out in just a moment, I'm going to do the world's shortest benediction in just a moment. I'm going to tell you some information about Southbridge Serves and send you out. And uh, if you want to pray with somebody, though, just stay in this room. And either one of these guys, one of these ladies will come and talk to you, pray with you, or you can go to them. But if you just go over there, let's just all pray. Father God, I come before you right now. I thank you for this church family. I thank you that your son, Jesus Christ, has risen. There's a reason for us to gather, that there's a reason for us to live, that you've given us a mission here, that you've not only transformed our lives so that we could have a better life, you've not only given us abundant life so that we'd experience it to its fullest, but you've done it for the sake of other people that we would then live differently, that they would see that we'd live a show and tell. And they'd see our lives and then we'd tell them about how you've transformed our lives. And God, I pray that you would put that burden on the hearts of each one of us. For some of us, you'd move us to action, the actions we haven't been taking. Maybe we've just been busy. Wake us up. That these signs that you've done, even your own resurrection, would point us to your son, Jesus, that we'd trust him, that we'd experience peace with him, that we'd have uh, the peace of God, not just peace with you, but peace of God in our lives. And, and Father God, I pray if there's anybody here who's in bondage, trapped in pornography, we know statistically that's got to be several people in this room. Statistically, there are people in this room that, are commit, that have thought about committing suicide this past week. God, I pray that they wouldn't just leave here like nothing happened, that you would... You would give them a lifeline. Give them, give them somebody to reach out to. And put your son Jesus in their hearts and their minds. Help them to have the things that we sang about in those songs. Victory over fear. That there would be no more bondage. That you would remove the power and the penalty of sin from their life. I thank you for that. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.